You're listening to My Queer Empire, a CT Empire podcast. Hit the beat. everyone welcome to the first ever episode of my queer empire a show on sex ed communication and select activist and queer topics transcripts with any additional diagrams or photos for all episodes will be available on the website for folks who would like one that's the ctempire.com t-h-e-c-t-e-m-p-i-r-e.com the ctempire.com To give y'all a sense of how these podcasts are structured, we will begin with a sex ed topic, transition into the theory of the day, and finally transition into a discussion on queerness or select activist topics using the theory of the day. Please be advised, these episodes will often discuss theories that lean into explicit content about bodies and may touch on theories with a high philosophical background that will require introspection and self-evaluation. Today, we will be discussing sex, gender, symbolic interactionism, and queer identities. It's time for Sex Ed. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Uh, Goofy jokes aside, let's actually talk about sex and gender. What's the difference? What's on the body versus what's in the brain? However, before I get into it, I want to preface this information and this section with this. Some of you may feel it's basic. Some of you might want to learn. Some of you may even think, people never learned this info? I thought it was basic common knowledge. The thing is, no, not common. Many people in the U.S. have parents who opt them out of basic sex ed and anatomy, but then refuse to have those conversations with them at home, albeit various reasons. But that child is still left with a lack of very basic anatomical knowledge that they need to take care of themselves. Hell, some kids may just not even have a comprehensive sex ed plan, so even if they did attend sex ed, it was focused on abstinence. But here's the problem with abstinence. Teaching abstinence when people need to know their bodies is completely useless. Abstinence does not protect against chronic bacterial vaginosis, yeast infections, or UTIs. It doesn't protect against cancer screenings, herpes, simplex virus, or HSV, one or two. It doesn't protect against HIV or various other things that you can get an infection from, even if you remain abstinent. So if you feel it's basic information, know that someone may not have heard that information before. Just like you may learn new information that someone else may feel is basic and common knowledge. However, for those willing to learn, in combination with listening to those who teach, please be sure you put in your own work as well. This especially goes for those learning about experiences and identities they have not experienced before, and probably never will. Ask people's capacity to teach. Respect their boundaries. And I'm hoping this podcast fosters conversations that invite people in to start developing good habits and having good and productive conversations and interactions with those willing. That's the beauty of learning and growing. So let's get into it. Sex was previously defined as binary, being male or female as the only options. Gender was 
also ascribed as the same thing, male or female, and used interchangeably with sex. However, numerous research, science, studies have shown that gender and sex are in fact not the same at all, and that there is more than two sexes, and sex is also a spectrum. This is due to fetal development and chromosomes. So, what is sex? Well, your sex can be defined as the chromosomes or biology that you were born with. It strictly lies within the medical and physical aspect of your body. Intersex is a term used to describe someone born with variations in sex characteristics. Whether it be chromosomes, genitalia, and so forth, they don't fit the strict binary of, quote, male and female. According to the National Institute for Health, intersex variation is a morphological and physiological anomaly where an individual is born with, quote, congenital conditions in which development of chromosomal, gonadal, or anatomical sex is atypical. In essence, the reproductive organs differ from those typically associated as being male or female. Evidence supports the premise that at critical stages in fetal development, exposure to exogenous chemicals known as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, can disrupt reproductive organ differentiation and development in utero, leading to an IV condition. In comparison, naturally red-haired people make up around the same percentage, to put it in perspective. Theoretically, if you've met someone with natural red hair you've also interacted with someone born intersex. When a fetus is inside the womb, the introduction of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs, by the parent could become the reason a child is born with IV. The critical time that would help determine the child's sex organs begins at around week seven. What are EDCs? Well, they're chemicals. Chemicals that are often commonly known and some not as commonly known. For example, DDTs, used in pesticides, are banned. Lead is also an EDC, has been flagged and removed in a lot of paints. The National Institute of Health touches on the effect that intersex surgeries and treatment can have on a child, stating that, quote, due to this emphasis on gender definition, a child identified as having an intersex condition historically underwent a course of surgeries and hormone treatments. This early medical intervention compelled the intersex child into a more defined male or female form physiologically, but it ignored the impact and potential confusion in gender identity or gender expression later in life with the onset of puberty. It later defines in this study done to assess the necessity and the dangers of performing intersex surgeries that Quote, by medically assigning a defined sex to an intersex child through surgical procedures and hormone treatments, we have missed biologically significant factors affecting human sex, gender determination, and inherent variation in the human species. So there you have it. There have been studies and numerous information and more comes out every day about the spectrum that is sex. And I encourage you all to do more research and explore more into the spectrum that is sex. So now you may be wondering, why did we go over all of that info about intersex people? I thought this was about sex. Well, yes, it is. We cannot continue to pretend intersex people don't exist. Sex is a spectrum and thousands of intersex people live among us today. 
There is little to no evidence that babies with IV need the treatments they undergo as babies, as their sex organs are likely, and most of the time, perfectly healthy. I encourage you all to dive into the research about the spectrum that is sex, and how characteristics are formed, and what biological sex is. This will help you differentiate sex and gender, which we will get into shortly. Stay tuned. Hey, did you know that we have merch? Yes! On the ctempire.com, we have sticker merch available for only $2.50 or $3. They're two by three holographic stickers that were hand designed by me and completely fund this podcast. If not merch, then you can just sign up for the email list on the website so that way you receive update emails for whenever this podcast has a new episode. That's the ctempire.com. T-H-E-C-T-E-M-P-I-R-E dot com. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. So, moving right along into gender. Studies have shown that gender is not the same as sex. Gender identity can be defined as a mental intuitive feeling of your relationship to the societal manifestation of man and woman characteristics that are socially constructed and forced to fit in our society. Gender is inherently fluid. It's socially constructed and it doesn't need to be defined if you don't choose to. An individual may identify with a gender, multiple genders, or no genders. It can change over time or stay constant. Some folks identify with the gender they were assigned at birth, making them cisgender, whereas some folks may not, and begin their journey with gender identity at any point in their life. Gender expression is your personal manifestation of your gender identity and can be expressed through a multitude of different avenues like clothing, body modifications like piercings and tattoos, makeup, hairstyles, voice pitch, and however else that person chooses to express themselves. Often, gender affirmation coincides with gender expression, but they don't always have to. To note, gender expression does not have to match gender identity, even though often that is a lot of people's goal. There are a number of reasons why someone's gender identity would not match their gender expression, and it's not for anyone else to decide or question. Gender affirmation can be defined as anything a person does to make themselves feel more comfortable in their gender identity or identities. This can range from binding their chest to engaging in hormone replacement therapy, HRT, to getting gender-affirming surgeries. Hormonal treatment, or HRT, is another form of gender affirmation. This is where individuals ingest, take shots, use a gel or a patch that releases hormones. There are multiple different avenues that a person can take when engaging in HRT. There is estrogen and testosterone and other medications that an individual takes when they're engaging in HRT and either can be stopped at any point in time with guidance from a doctor if that individual chooses to no longer take them. Another form of gender affirmation is gender-affirming surgeries that often take place on the chest, the genital area, hips, and facial surgery. 
any combination of these are different things someone can do to feel more comfortable in the skin that they're in. Let's talk about the different types of surgeries. So, often called bottom surgeries, there is vaginoplasty and phalloplasty. Vaginoplasty is the surgery when a vagina is created or reconstructed in gender-affirming surgeries. The penis and scrotum are removed and reconstructed to create a vaginal canal. Johns Hopkins University describes a phalloplasty as a multi-stage procedure that may include a variety of different procedures, including but not limited to creation of the penis, lengthening of the urethra so that one can stand to urinate, creation of the scrotum, removal of the vagina, and placing erectile and testicular implants. Often called top surgery, the chest may be performed on in the form of a subcutaneous mastectomy where chest tissue where chest tissue is removed or breast augmentation and mammoplasty where implants are placed in their chest area. There are many combinations of surgeries, expressions, and so forth that an individual may participate in to affirm their gender or genders. It is not up to society to label or judge the individual for the steps that they take in their gender journey, but rather support them to be as comfortable in the skin that they're in. Transitioning is not a process that every trans individual goes through, but that doesn't invalidate their gender. Period. Speaking of identities, let's discuss the communication studies theory of the day, symbolic interactionism. No one is available to take your call. Please hold for a very important message. Please leave a message. If you would like to leave a message, get into communication theory. And that's all what? And that's all period. (laughs) Welcome to the first communication theory segment. First, let's establish communication. Communication is the means by which we establish social connection and build relationships. The theory of the day is symbolic interactionism. This theory discusses the most basic foundation of communication as a concept and practice. It can be defined as the ongoing use of language and gestures in the anticipation of how the other will react, a conversation, and the formation of identity. This theory is focused on interpersonal communication, so micro-level language, individual interactions and how you operate in society. But it also references macro level systems, so larger society. All communication theories can be placed on a scale of objective to interpretive based on their basis and how the information is collected. For example, objective theories rely on numbers and hard data cause and effect to generalize. Interpretive theories rely more on philosophical concept, ethnographic studies, and sociological concepts. Both ends of this spectrum are valid forms of intense and scholarly research. Symbolic interactionism leans towards a more interpretive theory and can be defined as the ongoing use of language and gestures in anticipation of how the other will react. This theory discusses how we behave around people based on the significance we've placed on that person and how we think they will react. It discusses the concept of importance as a cultural construct. For example, this theory states that facts cannot speak for themselves. 
Humans have to assign meanings to the words and the figures in the fact in order for it to have more, quote, weight in society, thus having the facts speak. Language is the basis and source for all meaning. Language is not always verbal. Communication comes in the form of gestures, symbols, or a combination. Letters are merely symbols we've dictated a sound to that has developed over time, and words are just a combination of symbols that all have different sounds and we've assigned further meaning to those combination of sounds. Language, as described in this theory, is part of a stimulus and is the first step in the communication process. Stimulus is anything. A sneeze, a question, a loud noise, a follow-up answer, a lack of answer, etc. It describes the process as a stimulus that is then interpreted and then responded to. For example, when someone sneezes, a stimulus, it is interpreted, a sneeze. Someone is probably sick. Followed by a response. Possibly a bless you and a slight scoot away from that person. Especially if they don't cover their mouth. Gross. However, the interpretation of a stimulus changes over time. For example, in the time of COVID right now, a cough didn't warrant such alarm. But now it's public justification to be kicked out from a store, avoided on the subway, or quarantined from work as long as you have other symptoms as well. Mead discussed the example of the word dumb as a slur towards non-hearing, deaf, and hard-of-hearing folks. When perfectly healthy babies are born not hearing, ASL must be taught immediately to ensure the baby's cognitive function is not arrested. Language is part of the inner dialogue called minding, where we test alternatives, rehearse actions, and anticipate reactions and conversate concepts. Dumb has been used as a slur to refer to non-hearing folks because if the child has not been taught language by a certain age, their inner dialogue is disrupted. These children were then misdiagnosed as an ID, intellectual disability, or the child being on the autistic spectrum. Thus, all of the stigma, the name-calling, the slurs that were echoed to those groups of people were also put on to the non-hearing and hard-of-hearing babies. These sentiments are still harmful and echoed today with statements like, Are you dumb? Are you deaf? Do you not hear me? And arguments or insults. Calling an individual that is non-hearing or hard of hearing dumb is a slur. We will discuss the impact of naming later. I'd like to clarify that this example came straight from a communication theory textbook, where Mead, an editor, discussed this example to showcase the psychological necessity of language. This was intended to come across as a factual and historical lesson on why dumb is indeed offensive explaining how it came about and how it still echoes in society today. This was in no way meant to offend or disrespect anyone diagnosed with an ID, autism, or is deaf or hard of hearing, as those people deserve the same amount of respect as the folks not diagnosed with those disabilities. I am open to any folks with feedback or comments on this subject, their experience, and their perspective to email me at theCTEmpire at gmail.com. 
As someone who was born hearing, I cannot speak on behalf of those affected by this slur and want to uplift the perspectives of those affected by this. But they use this example to discuss the impact of minding and how psychologically we have to have language in order for our mind to function. Another pillar of theory is this minding concept, right? It starts from a very young age and derives from the teaching of language as a concept. Minding can be defined as a reflective pause, as it reflects our inner dialogue or thinking. We must note that it is not that deaf or hard of hearing folks can't think. It's that language is a required tool for the brain to think and practice minding. So when that aspect is inhibited, minding is not possible and there is no inner dialogue. This theory reiterates that it is imperative that language is taught to them as soon as it's caught to help with the arrested cognitive development from the lack of language taught to a child. Ableism in society contributes to the mistreatment of all disabilities. And this mistreatment affects non-hearing and hard-of-hearing folks. This is part of the reason why disability and language coincide, according to this theory. Mead, the lead theorist behind this theory, discusses that humans are unique in their ability to, quote, take the role of the other, or, more commonly heard, put ourselves in someone else's shoes. He reiterates that we cannot fully understand someone until we've engaged in that way. This moves into the concept of self. Now, this is my favorite part of this theory. The concept of self, as described by symbolic interactionism, is fascinating to me. So, specifically, it is broken down into two parts. The I and the me. The I and the me make the self. Say we have a mirror. When one looks into the mirror, you would say, I see me in the mirror. You wouldn't say, I see I or me see I in the mirror. This theory discusses the concept of self and I and me. The I is the object, the spontaneous driving force. The me is the person that other people refer to you as, the person based off of others' perception. Let's get into that, though. Levinas, a Jewish-European philosophy theorist, discussed that the self is socially constructed and that the I cannot exist outside of the other. Now, mind you, he uses the I in replacement of the the self. So, um, to Levinas, the I is the self. It's not separate things like Mead said, the I and the me. To Levinas, it was just the I. So the self cannot exist outside of the other. So you cannot exist outside of society and vice versa. So then that begs the question, what is the other? What is the generalized other? Well, it's society. And Levinas argued that the self or the I is a composite mental image that someone has of themselves based on societal expectations. Our internal dialogue is disrupted by the voices of the generalized other. Ergo, our identity is a combination of how we perceive ourselves and our ability to understand someone else's perception of us. 
This theory gives insight into identity and how our relationship with words as a concept develops into something we relate to and thus label as an identity. So the concept of me is developed due to the fact that humans can consciously take the role of the other or see that person's perspective and associate that with their image. Mead theorizes that we as people are constantly in negotiation with others to publicly define our identity and the nature of the situation. This is how we create our reality and why words have different connotations for different people. Part of our reactions are related to our past experiences and partly how others perceived us in those situations. Irving Goffman, a famous sociologist, theorized that our existence was largely dramaturgical, meaning that we are in a constant state of performance. Whether that be to break societal norms or conform to them, our actions have them in mind. We often engage in participant observation as well. This is where we essentially put ourselves in the role of the other and try to make sense of willingly ignorant perspectives. This contributes to our need to participate in, quote, naming, where we essentially assign labels to concepts, things, or actions. This is why certain names are offensive. The weight is determined by the value that has been placed on it over time and the historical impact that it has. Don't get this twisted by using this as a justification for non-black people to use the N-word. If anything, this reiterates why they can't. The societal development of this word and its history is the justification that white people cannot use this word. Damage has been done. And thus, their self or their me becomes damaged when they try to justify it to larger society. So... That was a lot of information, but why do we do these things? What advice does this theory give? Well, we'll talk about that in the next section. Stay tuned. Today's select queer topic is identity. Let's apply this topic using symbolic interactionism. So let's reiterate what communication is, right? Communication is the means by which we establish social connection and build relationships. Identity is fluid and should be seen more of a verb than it is a noun. It's something we live, we grow into and out of and constantly reevaluate. Even if you don't change your identity, you're constantly reevaluating to ensure that it should remain that way. How can interpretive theory help me figure out who I am, you might say? How can it help me have a conversation about who I am or even get better with communicating with myself? Well, as we learned, a large part of the theory is figuring out your I and your me, your minding and morals, and finally, naming. So... Let's figure out self or the I and the me. Your I is who you are. The person that makes decisions, the person that does things, engages in spontaneity, the person who likes the color yellow and enjoys the taste of pizza and strawberry ice cream, the smell of petunias and the sound of rap and indie music. Who is that person for you? Think about that. 
Now let's dive into the me. This is the person you see in the mirror, the person society sees you as, the person you're described as, and the person that is based off of the perception of society. I see me, remember? This is when you take the perspective of the other, even when it's harsh and critical, and you see yourself that way. Whether or not you choose to accept it is up to you, but that is your me. So it's important to note that even if you reject what society sees you as, you still understand how society sees you. And that is inherently part of how you see yourself. This person dresses a certain way when they enter different spaces. This person walks differently around their crush, displays their gender and style a certain way, and will flock to a certain friend group. Symbolic interactionism suggests that we are in constant battle with the public in justifying who we are, constantly proving ourselves with the decisions we make. How do you justify your existence? Do you wear certain clothes to stick out? Is that part of your identity as a person? Your me? Saying, I'm not someone who conforms to typical standards, that's just me. There, you are actively saying that your me is the personality where your I is the person. Do you identify as a rebel and an outcast, a conformist? Is this conscious or subconscious? This theory wants you to deal with these terms first. They are integral to the theory's predictions. According to Mead, if the I speaks, the me hears. Because, like closely looking at a snowflake under a microscope, the I melts into the me. The I cannot speak without the me either reacting to a stimulus and speaking or choosing to convey a message. Therefore, you will never truly know the I because it is inherently me. So, to give an example, when you graduate and go through a ceremony, the idea is that the moment you shake your hand with the principal or the dean and you are handed a paper that has been assigned meaning by society, your me changes and thus an identity is also named that you now identify with, a graduate. This is why people often pose for their parents when looking back and some people go the extra mile and dance on the stage and cheer and some people just keep walking. This is because their me is active in a constant performance and negotiation with society. A performance. Every choice, whether you choose to calmly walk across the stage or make a scene and dance, is an active choice. And it is a negotiation and a performance. Here's where it's interesting. Mead is not saying that you are fake or merely acting in any way. It is theorizing how and why your past experiences shape the way you behave in society by breaking down what it means to have an identity and the process you take to get there. And often part of that process is a subconscious performance, hence unspoken societal cues, the phrase, read the room, etc. Next, it discusses your minding. This is your thought process or how you think. 
minding your own business is a phrase that we hear all the time, but it means that you are thinking about your life and your choices, going through situations that may arise and making plans or no plans and are thinking about your life and your business. Hence, minding your business. Also the phrase, do you mind? It's asking if you've thought through the process and suggesting you think through the possible scenarios to help you make an informed consenting decision. It's often used as a term of permission, maybe condescendingly, maybe politely, but the term minding still stands with this theory. So according to this theory, it's suggesting that to function in society with an identity, we first develop our inner dialogue. How comfortable are you with your thoughts? What are your boundaries? How can you stick to them and not getting so lost in your thoughts that you disassociate? It's suggesting that minding can be helpful when engaging in a symbolic interaction or developing identity. Finally, it discusses naming. So us as humans find words to describe things and language being fluid, assigns subconscious weight to these words. Again, Facts have value because of the importance that we place on certain words. For example, human life is valuable. Pretty common sentiment. The fact that 3,000 people died in the U.S. in one day is a shocking and important fact because we've placed value on human life and, subconsciously, our life. However, the fact that on average 46 ants die per day is not such a shocking fact. Both of these facts deal with death, but we've placed more value on human life and the aftermath that comes from that fact. The urgency is important. We have not placed much value on the life of an ant as a society, but it's not just insects because if we give a figure about bees, we've placed more value on bees because of the role that bees have. And that is going to be a more shocking fact and more important to society than, say, how many ants die in a day. According to symbolic interactionism, facts having importance is subjective. For example, this can be seen during people's reactions to COVID. Some people value human life more than others, and some people value animal life more. Because we put meaning to the words and concepts of different facts, Facts then have subjective importance and thus explaining the lack of empathy for others that folks have shown in reaction to the facts and figures during this troubling time. Their importance is lying within the facts that they are given and they will not change their mind until they reach a fact or phrase with the importance they desire based on morals. This applies to identity. Certain individuals within the LGBTQ spectrum are named and deemed important, and definitions are ascribed to certain words. This also applies to identity. Certain identities within the LGBTQ spectrum are named and deemed important, and definitions are ascribed to certain words. There are plenty of identities that have not been formally named as it may be difficult for someone to describe their experience. 
Some people do not want to ascribe to a label, but this theory would suggest that it is because their acknowledgement of their self within the generalized other and feel that identity claiming is a performative act to belong in a community and their existence should be explored but not publicized. However, just like the theory describes, their decision and identity of self is based on the lack of want for reaction from the generalized other, thus making the interaction based on the generalized other and becoming part of their me. This is not the case for everyone, but a strong sentiment and example that's echoed. Essentially, this theory is explaining the reason why people do not ascribe to a certain identity because they don't want that identity to be all that they are recognized as. They don't want that to be part of their public image and they don't feel like they need to ascribe to a certain label or identity to feel part of the community. They will explore their identity and how they feel on their own time but don't feel the need to put a label to it. This is important because we place value on certain words or concepts, and because of that, a definition may resonate with us, then leading us to carry that experience with us through a label or labels. For example, different experiences will resonate with you, and some experiences may not. This is important because we place value on certain words or concepts, and because of that, a definition may resonate with us more than another, then leading us to carry that experience with us through a label or labels. For example, say there are two friends, Susie and Sam. Susie and Sam both essentially have the same type of attraction. They are both people who are attracted to women and femme-presenting people, and they were born with the same anatomy. However, Susie identifies as a lesbian, whereas Sam identifies as queer. Even though they may have the same type of attraction, different definitions resonate with them because of certain experiences that they have and the way that they see their me and their I. This does not make, you know, one person right or the other person wrong. It just means that these are two different people who are resonating with a certain definition based on their experiences, and that is completely valid. This is also why we weaponize labels, because of the weight that we place on those words in society. Name-calling forces us to see ourselves in a different light, our me is attacked and thus can leave an impact. Even when we regain that confidence and that word, that perspective is never erased. Our confidence gaining may be built on the downplay of that person or people, thus invalidating the slur or name. For example, if someone calls someone within the LGBTQ community the F word, that person may then, and we will talk about cognitive dissonance and the different ways that people cope with cognitive dissonance, they may downplay that person as ignorant and hateful and spiteful and therefore, you know, they're not really the F word. Now that, that interaction, it might stick with that person. They might build their confidence based on the fact that other people are ignorant and hateful, but they won't let that get to them. But the basis is still that interaction, even if it's been used to make that person stronger and for the better. 
I'd like to clarify that this theory is not, in fact, condoning any bullying or any harassment of any kind. It is merely explaining why we may take experiences and make them for the better, or sometimes for the worse. It essentially explains that our consciousness, our self, our I and our me, cannot exist outside of society. We base our experiences and our perception of self off of the interactions with the generalized other. Without the combination of language and interactions with the generalized other, we would not have a fully cognizant sense of self. So how do we reach a name or a label? Let's say someone discovers their love of women and femme-presenting people. First step, they recognize their I by minding their sexual feelings. Two, they may struggle as their me is perceived as straight, which conflicts with the I. Three, their me says how people perceive them as straight, and that fact is unsettling to them because their I is saying something different. Four, Upon finding the term lesbian, the definition matches the dissonant feeling felt when they saw their me and their I together, and then began to see the me and I as one person, thus becoming a whole self, and resonating with the definition that described the experience of the self in an accurate way. Five, this person is forced to engage in cognitive dissonance and will choose to accept, deny, or avoid this identity, and thus keep or change their current identity, the constant negotiation. The entire premise of symbolic interactionism is that language is fluid and subjective and contributes to culture. It may be a different process for some folks, but symbolic interactionism suggests that honing in on those pillars is the key to understanding yourself within a society. A new definition may arise, and this person's subconscious will match those feelings. The ideal of self then becomes unstable. This is where identity crises or existential crises arise, according to this theory. In summary, this theory advises that we master our I and me slash ourself through minding so that we can reach a name for that experience through a symbolic interaction with a definition. Remember that you are the expert of your own experience as yourself. And whoever yourself is, is whatever you interpret a label or identity as. So I pose to you, whether you're listening to this day or night, morning or evening, on your way to work or a day in the park, how will you apply this theory in the way you interpret your identities? Continue the conversation. Follow the CT Empire on Twitter and Instagram at the CT Empire. Head to thectempire.com for exclusive stickers to support the podcast. Sign up for the email list so that way you know whenever a new episode comes out. Today's episode was written by Cecily Thomas, researched by Cecily Thomas, produced by Cecily Thomas, and edited by Tessa Lawrence. Stay cute, stay hydrated, and most of all, welcome to My Queer Empire. I hope you enjoy your stay.